When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the 90s and 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Beijing. And I am your other host, Margot Poupard. I don't know about you, Margot, but when I was growing up, becoming a lawyer was a cool thing. Both our moms have law degrees, and it just felt like, thanks to TV and movies, being a lawyer was sexy and fun. It totally disregarded the mountains of paperwork and litigation and billable hours that really make up the lawyers, many lawyers' day-to-days. Would you agree with me, Marco? (laughs) I definitely agree. I really thought I was going to be a lawyer there for one second, Uh, especially in high school, being on debate and mock trial, which mock trial definitely put into perspective what I wasn't willing to do, which was a lot of boring reading and taking notes, but also the conundrum of that Allie McBeal or the practice, well, actually the practice did get me ready for this, but definitely not Allie McBeal, um, (laughs) having to defend somebody who you think is guilty. That was when I was like, I don't know if I can do this, you guys. Like, I like lying just fine, but this feels bad. I I went down the road of maybe I'd be a lawyer at one point. It was very short-lived, though, because, as you know, I am not a confrontational person. <laughs> and the idea of having to be confrontational if you are a courtroom lawyer or even in litigation, like I just it, – it sounded – it was anxiety inducing to say the least. And so that uh, thought was a very passing brief moment. Um, but well, there, yeah. Because I love uh, winning and being right. I was totally fine with the confrontation part if that meant that I got to be like declared the winner overall correct by the judge. So that was where my motivation came from. That was also when I realized that I was like a very oddly competitive person and that maybe I shouldn't do things that make me behave in this way. So another, you know, just more information for me to take in process and then go, huh, what if I did something completely useless, like be a writer? 
Lucky for you, though you decided not to become a lawyer, uh, there was a plethora of good writing being put out there in the 90s, specifically writing for TV shows and movies that centered around lawyers or cases. In the 90s, it was just there was a boom. Like, I mean, in the we had had famous lawyers in movies and TV shows throughout time, but I feel like this was the boom of the lawyer. And you had like a few good from the movie side, you had a few good men. You had Philadelphia, you had the Pelican Brief, you had Devil's Advocate, you had the Firm, <laughs> Rainmaker, Double Jeopardy, Aaron Brockovich, A Time to Kill. And on a more comedic side, you had my cousin Vinny and Liar Liar. <laughs> I just rewatched Liar Liar. That shit kind of still holds up, I have to it say. Is, it is my favorite Jim Carrey movie. It is his best work. Outside <laughs> of Truman Show. Outside of Truman Show, obviously. Oh, and Eternal Sunshine. But like his best comedic work, we'll put it there. But yes, best comedic work of the like golden Jim Carrey, we're talking Ace Ventura, Cable Guy, Mask, what have you. I would put Liar Liar up, up top. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> On TV, you had L.A. Law, you had Law & Order, you had JAG, you had Judging Amy, you had all of these shows on TV. Night Court. Night Court. You had- Loved Night Court. So many shows about lawyers or lawyer-adjacent TV shows, but one man decided he would make a career off of it and that he would have not one, not two- Three shows about lawyers that in many weeks, I believe at one point or another, all overlapped at the same time on air. At least two overlapped. I believe all three did. Well, Um, so we're talking about Boston Public because that was part of the trio. Boston Legal ended up being an offshoot of the practice. Yes. But by then, there were none of the other shows. I think maybe Boston Public might have been on a a little bit at the same time as Boston Legal. But Boston Legal is the fourth. The trio or the trilogy in this uh, initial David E. Kelly verse is practice Ally McBeal. Boston Public about school teachers, but there is a practice Boston Public crossover that I get into later. And Ally McBeal, I will add into that mix. So mm-hmm. they all yes. exist. They all take place in the greater Boston area and all well, take he also place said, in the same universe. Yes. David Kelly said multiple times these are all in the same universe, which is. <laughs> It's just very funny. I don't know. This dude, like, what we know about universes, uh, film or TV universes now to what he thought it was then, it's it's very funny. It's like, what he really means is, like, they have crossover episodes, not like they're necessarily in the same universe. But I feel like what I also gather from your intro, Emily, is that even if our moms didn't have law degrees, we would probably consider being a lawyer just by the sheer amount of pop culture that we were doing. passively or not passively just watching all the time because it just you named you named a couple bangers like double jeopardy devil's advocate the firm yes (laughs) those were all and like even just law and order like there's no way you didn't catch multiple like a multiple episode run of law and order when you were sick as a kid on a tbs or Mm -hmm. a tnt TNT. or a usa oh my god no characters and they're detectives sometimes (laughs) they're vincent d'onofrio I would say criminal intent is probably the lower one for me of of, of all of the. Oh, but it's um, the best one. It was so scary. It, it was like, creepy. It was very creepy because he was like, it was sort of a little mind huntery in the way that, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio is like this weirdo who has like a gift for <laughs> sussing out 
creeps and sociopaths. Yeah, I have a little weirdo on that show. It's oh my yeah. god, I know. And have, to have that be the first time I'd ever seen him act anything, it's like a very different standard than if like the first thing you ever saw him in was like as kingpin or whatever. You know, like not it's, quite the same. You know, it's funny because that is the first time I ever saw him in anything, and then later I would see him in things he had been in before, including Mystic Pizza, where he plays oh, yeah. a very different character. <laughs> He's sort of like Michael Shannon in that way. Yeah, indeed. You know, we need a buddy cop dramedy starring Vincent Donofrio and Michael <laughs> Shannon. It would be so fucked, but like, God, Even if it you was know, like the happiest, funniest script ever. It would somehow still be depressing. So dark, <laughs> so dreary. So it would still be up. called a gritty reboot, even if it was like based on original IP. <laughs> <laughs> But we have scraped from David E. Kelly's yellow legal pads. I am so sorry. No, you are fine. Um, but I'm glad we talked about a bunch of different things and we that we brought up that David E. Kelly decided to put his hand in the legal world, in the education world, in the medical world. More on that in a second. <laughs> but he was so just everywhere, ubiquitous at one point um, in the 90s, early 2000s. He holds the distinction of being one of the few screenwriters to have created shows that have aired on all the four major U.S. TV networks, ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC, and obviously has a contract with or a deal with HBO. This man cannot, can't stop, won't stop. You know, it is just, he is everywhere. What is unique about David E. Kelly, though, is that from a legal standpoint, he is actually writing about a subject matter he is very familiar with, unlike a lot of workplace-centered shows. David E. Kelly actually has a law degree and even practiced for several years before full-time going into TV writing. So before we go a little into David E. Kelly's background, Margot, I have to ask, did you watch any of the three shows that we're talking about today? And have you watched some of David E. Kelly's non-lawyer-centered shows? Yes and yes. I watched, well, I made my mom let me watch some of Allie McBeal with her because it was a little like maybe too mature. And I think it came on a little bit later, but I just had to know what this dancing baby was all about. And like the whole um, biological clock ticking thing didn't really like quite hit me until I was like quite a bit older because I must have been. Yes you know, in sixth grade, maybe seventh when it first started airing. But I watched The Practice a little bit as well, especially when it became like a Sunday night show. And even though I'll get into it later, there's like a whole plot subplot where somebody has a severed head like at the office over two episodes. Somehow that was like okay for me to watch, but Ally McBeal wasn't because I don't know, they had like uh, a either gender bathroom like I don't really understand what the differentiation was there but I did like the practice but I kind of fell off at a certain point because it kind of you know becomes case of the week very repetitive but um I really loved Boston Public like just Mm. for some reason got super into that show and it also went on in syndication for forever so whenever I could catch like an episode here or there I was super happy to do it but um, when I was doing research for it for the episode, it's nowhere to be streamed. It is not on DVD, apparently, or hard to hard to find on DVD. Like it uh, had an initial run, but like to find like a, you know, a fresh copy of it or whatever for your collection, you won't be able to do that, um, which is really disappointing. But in terms of other David E. Kelly shows, obviously loved season one of Big Little Lies. 
Yes. Not season two. No. Watch The Undoing. That was whatever. I've seen quite a bit of his stuff. Like, and even things I didn't know were his. Like, um, I watched an episode or two of that Mr. Mercedes miniseries. Okay. But I had no idea that was him. Yeah, he that's the thing with him is like you don't realize because he may be he may not be showrunner, but he's a producer in the wings somewhere. Mm-hmm. Oh, he, and I've seen like Placid. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Which is where I learned the little tidbit that he loves to write all of his scripts. David E. Kelly does longhand on a legal pad. And that's that's where he starts, which I just think is like just some lawyerly, writerly bullshit. But but I also believe it. And then it got confirmed as like a little fact. And I was like, Jesus Christ. OK, so, yeah, Lake Placid is also just a horrible, dumb movie, but it's a fun, bad movie. Yes, I I too have seen like Placid. Definitely, well, when Netflix started streaming and like putting lots of shows on their streaming platform, so like 2010, 2011, and you know, around then before they dabbled into er- original programming, I rewatched all of Ally McBeal. I had seen an episode here and there when it originally aired, but really watched it then. Um, mm-hmm. Watched a few episodes of Boston Public. And Boston Legal and maybe caught an episode of The Practice here and there. But really the one I've seen in its full you know, entirety is Allie McBeal. And then to your point, I've seen season one of Big Little Lies. I had caught a rerun of Dookie, a Hauser here and there. But yeah, um, I feel like David E. Kelly just kind of shows up and you don't even realize. And then you look it up and you're like, oh, of course he's involved. He and his little legal pads. Do you um, remember around the time that the first Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman was coming out, people were made aware that David E. Kelly had written a Wonder Woman script himself and that I forget who played Wonder Woman. And I do believe it was like repurposed as a TV movie, although unclear if it ever saw the light of day. I, oh, Pedro, Pedro Pascal was in it. And um, what's her name? Adriana Pilecki and Carrie Elves. Wow. I and had... Liz Hurley. Absolutely. Bon- Edward Herman. Jesus. Absolutely bonkers cast. Oh, my God. Also, the irony, because Pedro Pascal was then in um, Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah. Well, there's a whole full circle for you. And also, Willem uh, from Drag Race fame is in this as well. Like, I don't ah. even... I don't... Again... Oh my God, Phil McGraw. Um, I unclear if it ever saw the actual light of day. It has a runtime and everything, but I don't remember this at all. But I do remember when Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman was coming out. People were like, "Oh, do you remember this?" Uh, and like put up like a still of um, Adriana Padecki uh, and her like Wonder Woman get up, and I was like, "Whoa!" I don't have any recollection of this at all, even though it was 2011. So it looks like they ordered a pilot. Mm-hmm. They oh, created the pilot. It was going to be a TV show. Yes. Okay. And it was going to be a TV show. They created a pilot, all that stuff. They cast people, the plot, you know, all this stuff. NBC later decided not to pick up the project for a series in 2011. So it looks like what's kind of weird about it is they had done all the casting and like it was even so much as like, there's a picture of Adrian Palicki as Wonder Woman on the cover of the TV Guide magazine as part of its fall sneak peek issue in 2011. But mm-hmm. it looks like it never actually aired, which is crazy. So it went through all of this, but it never actually 
aired. The, it expected to debut in 2011, but NBC opted not to buy the series. Uh, but yeah, this cast is insane. And this is around the time I feel like they were trying to make a lot of Friday Night Lights actors into bigger stars. Because like, mm-hmm. I feel like what's so so Adrian Palicki obviously was on Friday Night Lights. And then the guy who played Riggins, he they tried to make him an actor multiple times. Oh, John of Mars or whatever, that really expensive Disney movie that yes. flopped without a trace. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was just a horrible mess. Yeah, I totally remember that. Oh, my gosh. And I mean, you and I both watched a total of two episodes of Big Sky, which is currently yes. on, which we don't know what it's about right now, but it had some promise in the first two episodes to be a little bit like a Twin Peaks thing, but then it kind of immediately fell apart. So, yeah. which I feel like is kind of the theme for some of his um, shows going forward. And he also did The Crazy Ones, which was that Sarah Michelle Gellar, Robin Williams show oh that I God, also watched yeah. two episodes of, but was like, I don't, I did not come back to it, unfortunately. Well, and it didn't get canceled, right? It was ended. It just ended it because ended it when, died. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, that's the last decade. I will say, like, apart from Big Little Lies, I feel like the last decade he's had some minor success. But really, I think the big one for him was Big Little Lies. Totally. Uh, but I think it's also because Kelly is a great writer. But I think the writing that he does is very suited for network and network of a certain era. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why he does very well in the 90s and 2000s and why he maybe doesn't do quite as well. Um, And I think part of the other thing with Big Little Lies is it was adapted from existing IP, the book. And then on top of that, Jean-Marc Vallée, may he rest in peace with Reese Witherspoon, did a fantastic job creating producing it together so it was a joint effort and i think that's why it was such a great first season well uh, to your point it's 100 that there was a book there like if see it's sort of like how game of thrones went off the rails when there was no more source material and they had exactly. to kind of make it up and i think that season two was trying to do like a unique under one vision but then they had all that stuff happened with Andrea Arnold and so we'll never know what could have been for season two and how we would have had to adjust the script based on the changing directors and where they wanted to take things but I think first and foremost the fact that there was no IP to base base it off of is why I think it kind of like structurally was not sound to start with but then he also had um that that Netflix show the Anatomy of a Scandal, which I believe had Sienna Miller in it. I didn't watch it, but it had a little buzz around it. I think it did. Yeah, I'm trying to remember who all is in that show because it's it's Sienna Miller and it's um, hold on. I'm pulling it up right now because I always get it confused with a very British scandal, which was another show. It's a different show. Uh, a a different show. show. But it's Sienna Miller, it's Rupert Friend, it's Michelle mm. Dockery, and I think these are the main people, the names I recognize when I'm looking at this cast. But yeah, this I have not watched, so maybe check it out. Um, yeah, I don't know. But David A. Kelly is an interesting character because, as I mentioned earlier, he ends up, he was a lawyer and had very much had his own career before going uh, into television writing. David E. Kelly was born April 4th, 1956 in Waterville, Maine, raised in Belmont, Massachusetts. 
His dad was the manager of the New England Whalers hockey team, and he grew up as a stick boy for the team and later played hockey at Princeton, where he was captain of the team and graduated with a degree in 1979. He then went on to Boston University School of Law, and during that time, he wrote for the Legal Follies, which is a sketch comedy group composed of Boston University law students and still holds annual performances. I learned through friends who go to law school that this is a very common thing, like law school acapella groups, law school review. Like my friend who went to the University of Minnesota for law school was in an annual like musical for the law school. I had no idea this was a thing until like three years ago. I, you know what? Funny lawyers are, I wouldn't say a dime a dozen, but I'm not unfamiliar with the concept, right? Like I've yeah seen plenty of stand-up comedians who used to be lawyers or have like written with former lawyers before. I I think because you have to like craft a narrative when you're in court and it is like a presentation in a show, some of them get more into it than others. And so, I mean, I've definitely also taken improv with former lawyers. Like it's really not that surprising that they (laughs) They need something Yeah, that they have these trips because I mean, it really is you're reading like dry ass stuff or sometimes like really traumatizing, scary, crappy shit happening to people. And so, yeah, everybody needs an outlet. And if they want to get out some lulls and that's great and like there are already good writers like that's why it's like unfair that lawyers can also be comedy writers like leave something for the rest of us who didn't go to law school and don't have a backup job i will say one of the better teams in the karaoke league i was in in dc was affidavit bowie the law <laughs> oh my god <laughs> the I, there's law so karaoke much, team <laughs> there's so much for me to like take in with what you just said okay I, yeah i just put a lot in there Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that is what you're saying. Yeah, because they're like psycho perfectionists to like a T. You need presence to be in a courtroom, stage presence, right? So why not? Be, <laughs> if the microphone is not for a deposition, <laughs> look, if they can like whatever, like Tiff V, like fee uh, against the state or whatever, like off the top of their head, of course they're going to be amazing at memorizing lyrics. Like, I. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. They have the skills. David E. Kelly took writing, and actually this this segues very nicely into the fact that David E. Kelly continued writing on the side while he began his law career, where he was working for a law firm in Boston, mostly dealing with real estate, minor criminal cases. He began writing a screenplay as a hobby in 1983, which started out as a legal thriller and was later optioned three years later and eventually was turned into a comedy dra- drama titled From the Hip in 1987, which starred Judd Nelson. This oh, my God. Get- I've seen that movie. <laughs> yes. So David E. Kelly co-wrote. Well, he wrote the original <laughs> script, but it was, I think, written with the director afterwards. Huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. I did. Again, didn't know he was there. <laughs> yep. He's everywhere, Margo. He's everywhere. Yep. <laughs> That script will end up getting sent by Kelly's agent to L.A. Law showrunner Stephen Bochco, who at the time was looking for writers with law backgrounds. David E. Kelly will start it out as a writer and story editor on the show, but was still practicing law in Boston, um, not making this a full-time thing just yet. But eventually, his role behind the scenes expanded, and he became he became executive story editor and co-producer, and later became the exec producer of the show and showrunner when Bochco left the series in 1989. While executive producer, David E. Kelly received two Emmys for Outstanding Writing in a Dramatic Series, and the show received an award for Outstanding Drama Series. 
he left the fifth after the fifth season in 1991 and the ratings began to fall and eventually the two showrunners were brought back as creative consultants to help try to bring back the ratings during this time in 1989 kelly and botchko co-created doogie hauser which lasted for four seasons and 97 episodes and kelly would go on to create picket fences which was like his Twin Peaks, if you will. It aired from 1992 to 1996, won 14 Emmys. And then he created Chicago Hope during that time, which aired from 1994 to 2000, because you could never have too many legal and medical dramas on TV. Uh, David E. Kelly formed David E. Kelly Productions in the mid-90s. And eventually in 1995, he signs a five-year deal with 20th Century Fox Television to produce shows for both ABC and Fox and I feel like this is a point where I can stop and you can start with the practice. Yes, because the practice was part of his five-year deal with 20th Century Fox to produce shows for both, this is still so insane to me, ABC and Fox. Each yes. network then agrees to take two series. Pre, pre-acquisitions, by the way. This is before Disney acquires all, all everything here. But this is also very, like, parent trap. Like, you take one twin and I'll take the other twin and they'll never meet. Like, it's just... <laughs> and then what do, you, what do you do with, like, the little one in between? Anyway, I just signed this whole deal to be so funny for some strange reason. But each network, like, a, like two good divorced parents who will eventually get together, um, if only for money again. Each network agrees they'll take two series each. And if one network passes on a project, then the other one gets first right of refusal. And Kelly in this whole thing retains full creative control. Again, all of these things like just do not happen now. No. So Ally McBeal went to Daddy Fox and the practice went to Mom ABC. And these were the first two projects to come from this deal. So the practice premiered in March of 1997 as a mid-season replacement and was Kelly's chance to write another courtroom drama, but this one focusing on the less glamorous side of a small law firm practice. The practice would be the first of four successful series by Kelly that were set in Boston outside. He's from outside of Boston, Belmont, Massachusetts. He viewed the practice as a sort of rebuttal to the show that gave him a start, L.A. Law, which he thought romanticized the American legal system. The practice focused on conflict between legal ethics and personal morality with a little bit of light comedy, which, again, is weird for a show that had a severed head as a subplot over several episodes. But OK, ABC put the practice on Saturday initially at 10 p.m., which is never a good sign. It's a death slot. Yeah, it's totally like we don't give a shit about your show. The show somehow, though, managed to build a small but loyal following and got promoted to Mondays at 10 a year later when Monday Night Football was over. The ratings kept growing, and by September, ABC got rid of their Sunday night movie idea and gave it to the practice. And that's when the practice really took off. And the Sunday night 10 p.m. positioning made the show perfect for Monday water cooler talk. And I think it's actually an interesting discussion to have because I, there's still something to time slot placement, even yes. in the age of streaming, because... Did you read that article comparing like the buzz of House of Dragon versus Rings of Power, how it was exponentially different, even though they're both, you know, Rings of Power is like might be arguably like a slightly better show because of like how much money they spent on it and you know how well written it is and all that stuff. But it doesn't get half the buzz because it, it the new episodes drop on like Fridays and House of Dragon is on Sundays. Sundays. Yeah. I mean, HBO, even in a streaming age, has been very smart about that. Totally. So, tale as old as time, you got to have the right time slot if you really want your show to sing. 
But at the same time, Kelly was concurrently writing The Practice and Ally McBeal, which seems insane if you know anything about this man's process, which, as I've said before, he writes everything longhand on a yellow legal pad. And because of this, The Practice and Ally McBeal are technically in the same universe, the Kellyverse, if you will. David E. Kelly was able to win two Emmys, one for Outstanding Drama for the Practice and one for Outstanding Comedy for Ally McBeal the same year. This has not happened since. They also won the Emmy for Best Guest Actor in a Drama Series or Best Drama a- or Best Guest Actress in a Drama every year that it aired. So they got John Larroquette A. Emmy, Edward Herman, James Whitmore, Beach Richards, Michael Emerson, Charles Dutton, Alfred Woody. William Shatner and Sharon Stone all got their Emmys because of a guest stint on The Practice. The Practice wasn't just an awards fave. It was also a critical success. The New York Times loved it, obviously, for its, quote, profoundly realistic, unending battle between soul searching and ambition. When Kelly did eventually hire a writer's room, though, it was full of people who would go on to create equally popular TV, like David Shore, who created House, Stephen Gagan, who wrote Traffic, the Oscar winner, writers would go would continue to grow and they would just keep adding people who had law degrees similar to how he got his job or how he got his big break on L.A. Law. By the fifth season, though, Kelly stopped being so hands-on officially and would only take on final passes of the scripts. And by 2003, unfortunately, due to low ratings, ABC had to cut Kelly's budget in half for the eighth and final season, which is where we get the most controversial part of the practice, which is when he fired everybody as a response to keep costs down and to hire James Spader in the role of Alan Shore, a lecherous, twisted antitrust lawyer with a breezy disregard for ethics. The final episodes of The Practice were focused on introducing new characters for his next show, Boston Legal. ABC reached a deal with David E. Kelly and 20th Century Fox to bring back The Practice for its eighth season, but at a much, much lower licensing fee, which is part of the reduced budget. And their old deal gave them the option to bring back the show for roughly $6.5 million, which was like a figure that was cut in half from previous years. Anyway, the news of half the cast getting fired uh, came about. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. A week after the show's cast members, including their star, Dylan McDermott, were on stage for ABC's Upfronts. So that's got to be a real kick in the pants to be yikes, out here. Yikes, yikes. Out here begging advertisers to come to your show, and then a week later, you get totally canned. So David E. Kelly, though, he was very vocal in his displeasure about having to choose between net gains and his cast. And so his decision to axe half the practice was partially, um, I wouldn't say like uh, to get back at the network, but after they took them off of Monday nights, he knew that the writing was on the wall. So it didn't really seem super promising. You can do really quickly the casting because guess what? There are no think pieces on the practice. So what I'm telling you right now is essentially a little bit about what each cast member, main cast member had done before they were cast on the practice, if that works. Sure. So it's again, no think pieces. A dot like a dime a dozen when it comes to Allie McBeal, because everybody has an opinion on Allie McBeal. But when it comes to the practice, really what we're going to talk about is how most of this cast was relatively unknown before this show aired. It was a cast made up of character actors or people who had been big on the- in theater uh, or maybe even had like multi-arc stints uh, on Law and Order, but like really had not done really iconic roles, probably except for Lara Flynn Boyle. Um, so Dylan McDermott, who played Bobby McDonald, whose real name, by the way, is Mark Anthony McDermott. Uh, he had been in a few movies, but this is like his big break because he was in Steel Magnolias. He he plays Joy Roberts' husband. Twister, not that one, another one. Um, and Miracle on 34th Street, the remake that they made in the 90s with your former classmate, Mara Wilson. Uh <laughs> But he has a break in the film, The Line of Fire, that starred Clint Eastwood. And through that connection, that's how he lands the practice. And despite the success on the practice, like you said, he was cut on the sh- from the show like a lot of other cast members do to budget stuff. But he did appear in the final two episodes. Lisa Gay Hamilton, who played Rebecca Washington, had done some TV and movie work, but was really a major theater actor. And she played opposite Kevin Klein in Measure for Measure in the New York Shakespeare Festival. She did a ton of work in Shakespeare. So she did Much Ado About Nothing. Um, she did Two Gentlemen of Verona. She did a portrayal of a South African singer in Athel Fugard's Valley Song, where she won a Obie Award and the Clarence Durant Award and an Ovation nomination for Best Actress and a Drama Desk nomination. And we have talked about Lisa Gay Hamilton on the show before, Margot. Because she plays the mom who complains in Miranda's building in that Sex in the City episode when uh, Brady won't stop crying and later is the editor over at the Wall Street Journal for John Carreyu in uh, The Dropout, which we watched earlier uh, this year. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Making connections in our little universe. Steve Harris played Eugene Young and prior to the practice hadn't had many major roles. If we're talking legal police dramas, he had done some episodes of Law and Order and Homicide, Life on the Street, but really he hadn't done much. And Cameron Mannheim, who played Eleanor Frutt, she worked actually before even acting, she worked as an ASL interpreter at hospitals. And that knowledge was used on an episode of Law and Order where she guest starred three times in three different roles before the practice and had some minor roles here and there. But really, the practice was her big break. And she also got to use ASL on the show. Um, And it's around the time practice starts airing that she's in Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. Kelly Williams, who played Lindsay Dole, was also relatively unknown. 
and Michael Badalucco had been more of a character actor with minor or almost extra roles in Raging Bull, Jungle Fever, Desperately Seeking Susan, and Sleepless in Seattle. But one of the roles you'll remember him for, Margot, is he's the doorman in You've Got Mail who tells Tom Hanks that he's going to propose to his girlfriend if he gets out of the elevator when the elevator gets stuck. Aww. Uh, yeah. And then uh, finally, the two last people I'll talk about are Lara Flynn Boyle, who before playing Helen Gamble, was obviously best known as playing Donna Hayward on Twin Peaks and then played Stacy in Wayne's World. And had been in several other movies, but really she her her next big break after Twin Peaks is is the practice. And then finally, Marla Sokoloff, before playing Lucy Hatcher, was a prolific kid and teen actor. She played Stephanie's best friend Gia on Full House. She played mean girl Cokie Mason in the Babysitter's Club movie. And she had recurring role on Party of Five, in addition to guest spots on Home Improvement, Boy Meets World, and Step by Step. And that's really all I have about casting for this show, just because, again... There were really no think pieces about this. There was absolutely nothing to pull from for the practice. There was nothing to pull from for Boston Public. It was uh, it was hard to cobble something together. I mean, even just typing in Boston Public, they're like, oh, Boston Public Schools. I'm like, no, the TV show, Google. Come on now. And it I couldn't find episodes of either. And so, yeah, good times. <laughs> So going into Ally McBeal, Ally McBeal is a dramedy, a legal dramedy, if you want to, you know, give it specifics, uh, that aired on Fox from September 8th, 1997 to May 20th, 2002. Fox was at the time in need of a new big show for adults since Melrose Place was declining in ratings and they hadn't had a big hit. You know, they had The Simpsons, but like they weren't they did not have that many big hits at the time. The show stars Calista Flockhart as Ally McBeal a young lawyer in Boston who's leaving as she's leaving her old firm because one of her partners sexually harassed her. She bumps into Richard Fish played by Greg German, her old law school colleague and co-owner at the law firm Cajun Fish. As she's getting an office tour, we meet her quirky assistant, Elaine Vassell, played by Jane Krakowski. And just as things look like there will be a breath of fresh air in her life, Allie is introduced to one of the other lawyers at the firm, Billy. Billy, however, isn't a stranger to Allie. They were childhood sweethearts who broke up after their first year at Harvard Law when Billy transferred to Michigan so that he could make law review, or so he claimed. He's now married to Georgia, played by Courtney Thorne-Smith, who's also a lawyer and eventually joins Cajun Fish. Rounding out the Cajun Fish law firm are co-owner John Cage, played by Peter McNichol, and second season additions. And two of the better characters, I might add, um, Nell Porter, played by Portia de Rossi, and Ling Wu, played by Lucy Liu. We also have Ali's roommate, D.A. Renee, played by Lisa Nicole Carson, Bonda Shepard, who serves as Ali's almost musical counterpart, who plays the singer at the bar where Ali and her co-workers hang out, usually singing a song or cover that's related to the theme of that episode. So she also sings the show's theme song, Search in My Soul, which for me is like a top 10 theme song, in my opinion. And then there are other season regulars that have a one to two season role, most notably James Legros as Mark Albert and Robert Downey Jr. as Larry Paul. But more on Robert Downey Jr. later as he because he is behind a major plot change that David E. Kelly had to rework into the show. It's very much a dramedy in the sense of the cases that serve as plot devices throughout the episode and then there are some story arcs that are dramatic, but ultimately it's very funny because of how eccentric everyone is at the law firm. Case in point, much of the show's office conversations take place in the firm's unisex restroom 
Take that, transphobic lawmakers. Look at David E. Kelly, pioneer for the working people. (laughs) It is kind of funny when all these like anti-transphobic bathroom laws started being written because all I could think of was Ally McBeal in those scenarios. And I wondered if any of those awful politicians had seen the show. Despite the unisex bathroom, there is clearly little to no HR at Cajun Fish because there is a lot of inner office dating and love triangles, most notably between Allie, her ex Billy, and his now wife, Georgia. The show was revolutionary at the time because it had an online presence before that was even really a thing. It had a ton of running gags that showed up throughout the show. Some examples include John Cage's nose whistle, which he used to make lawyers uh, nervous in court. Allie would fall over when she saw someone she thought was cute. Richard had a thing for women's waddles, uh, which is the the st- the skin under the neck or like under your chin. And he would go after and like touch women's waddles. It was very weird. He'd also say things, he'd say bygones all the time. And in fact, the final episode of the show is titled Bygones. And then John Cage would also dismount uh, from the bathroom stalls in the unisex bathroom and uh, there were dancing twins at the bar like there were just a lot of things and then they used a lot of the dramatic fantasy sequence to play out like inner monologues or inner thoughts including the dancing baby which probably became the most famous running gag on the show to talk about Ali's biological clock so you might remember this very uh, early 90s CGI baby showing up uh, dancing to hooked on a feeling uh Uga chaka, uga uga. Anyway, it became a phenomenon, and like some of the first gifts that ever existed on the internet, or what what we could now call gifts, uh, were of those dancing babies. So, way to go, Ally McBeal for internet culture. The show also is notable because it had a ton of iconic guest stars, uh, most notably on the music side of the house, where a lot of singers would come to perform at the bar where everyone hangs out because, yeah, some random bar in Boston is where every major musician is going to just show up and sing with Vonda Shepard. So this includes Josh Groban as he was just becoming famous, Mariah Carey, Robert Downey Jr. singing Every Breath You Take with Sting, and Barry White, who Nell gets as a surprise 40th birthday present for John Cage, which you might remember John Cage's character would dance to Barry White while he was in the unisex bathroom and lip sync to Barry White. That was like a continued running gag on the show. The series also takes place, as you mentioned, as the same universe as The Practice. And the two shows had, I believe, two or three crossover episodes, um, which is a rare thing to do, especially when you have two different shows on different networks. Um, the only ones for me that come to mind are Friends, where Lisa Kudrow played Phoebe on Friends, but also played Ursula on Mad About You. And so they had a crossover where they said that Ursula was Phoebe's twin sister. And that meant that Mad About You and Friends were in the same universe. Uh, We can talk about that in another episode, though. And then Allie McBeal will also have flings with some famous people, including John Ritter, RIP, and then after Billy dies at the end of the or midway third season, RIP, Robert Downey Jr. shows up as a new lawyer and later Allie's love interest, which leads to a section I call ch-ch-ch-changes. So Billy, played by Gil Bellows, dies midway through season three, dropping dead of a brain tumor while declaring his lifelong love for Allie. But the show loves weird dancing babies and shit. So, of course, Billy just shows up as a ghost throughout the rest of the series, which... Um, the show is one of those shows where I think the first two seasons are pretty strong and part of this third season's okay. 
it really jumps the shark at a certain point. And that's saying a lot for a show that's very eccentric. But I think season four has a moment of redemption with Robert Downey Jr. Unfortunately, there are he is part of the major departures that will ruin the show. Robert Downey Jr.'s unfortunate arrest when he was a guest star on season four, a regular on season four, meant that they had to alter the plot altogether. So originally it was intended that Allie McBeal, after getting over the death of Billy, would fall in love with Robert Downey Jr.'s character and get married. Robert Downey Jr. over Thanksgiving 2000 was arrested at Merv Griffin's hotel in Palm Springs um, because of a 911 call and was searched by the the police. They found cocaine and Valium on him. But needless to say, he had a lot of legal and rehab troubles during that time. And unfortunately, they had to get rid of him on the show. Therefore, in the final, I believe it's the season four finale, they are set to get married and then he just disappears. So that actually made ratings decline again. And then on top of that, Lisa Nicole Carson, who played Renee, Allie's best friend and roommate, unfortunately had a bipolar disorder and had a lot of personal issues happen at the time and had to spend several weeks in a psychiatric ward after a 2000 breakdown in New York. And she actually was asked to leave the show. She would come back later in the final episode, but she leaves the show. So there were a lot of kind of shuffling of people. And it. I think ultimately the show will end up losing quite a bit of steam. It will end when the fifth and final season uh, with an episode titled Bygones, as I mentioned before, where Allie decides to leave Cajun Fish, leaves Boston and goes to New York City. So in terms of Allie McBeal's legacy, and this is where the think piece of it all comes out because there were so many think pieces. Allie McBeal in its first seasons was a top 20 hit. It averaged more than 13 million viewers at its peak, won the Golden Globe Award for Best TV Series, and among other things, won Emmy Awards for Outstanding Comedy Series, and has the distinction of being the first and only hour-long TV show to win an Emmy for Best Comedy Series. Show has been seen as both a landmark show and depicting single unmarried women with careers, but also criticized for having a main character who is often portrayed as flaky, not a great lawyer, who would let personal relationships get in the way of being competent and doing your job. And it was also heavily criticized, as you know, because Calista Flockhart and many of her female co-stars had several weight problems at the time. And despite denying it at the time the show aired, Flockhart would later go on to say she was dealing with an eating disorder when Ally McBeal was being filmed. Portia de Rossi in her 2010 autobiography also revealed that she had been dealing with eating disorders throughout her career, but it even intensified while she was on Ally McBeal. And Courtney Thorne Smith would even leave the show after its third season because of the pressure she felt to be thin and how it had taken over her life. And even Jane Krakowski, who wasn't as thin as the other co-stars, remarked that she often felt, you know, like a cow or bigger than all of them on the show because she happened to not be super, super thin. Perhaps the most notorious example about like whether the show was a feminist show or whether or not it was, you know, detrimental to feminism was the fact that Ally McBeal was on the cover of Time magazine on the June 29th, 1998 issue which had her on the cover with Susan B. Anthony, Betty Friedan, and Gloria Steinem, and with the title, Is Feminism Dead? They even reference the cover of the Time Show in the show when Allie talks to John Cage about a dream she had where she was on the cover as the face of feminism. All in all, though, Allie Beale's legacy still lives on. It's very much referenced in the new She-Hulk uh, TV show on Disney+, 
And it's so referenced that there is a development of a revival over at ABC. Karen Gist will be the showrunner who's best known for being a producer on Girlfriends, Revenge, House of Lies, Grey's Anatomy, One Tree Hill, and most recently executive produced the Mike Tyson miniseries on Hulu. The show will center around a young black woman who recently joined Cage Fish or whatever the the law firm may be now straight out of law school. And the woman is believed to be um, Renee's daughter. And that's what I have about Ally McBeal. I realized I tried to condense this as much as I could, but it was so there were so many think pieces. Well, lucky you, because <laughs> I did not have your problem at all. And that was interesting, though, because I really didn't watch the whole thing through. I maybe saw a handful of episodes that were probably in the first two to three seasons, if that. So a lot of that I did not remember at all. But Boston Public, I remember some of, and it's the third installment in the Kellyverse and two of three Boston-based shows. Boston Public is a lot like Abbott Elementary, except not funny and in Boston. I'm just kidding. Here's the real logline. It's set in Boston and it centers on a high school, Winslow High School, a fictional public high school in the Boston Public School District. It features a huge ensemble cast and focuses on the work and private lives of various teachers, students and administrators at the school. So there's a little bit of like a Degrassi going on. It aired on Fox from October 2000 to January 2004. According to Anthony Heald, though, who plays Scott Gruber, the assistant principal of the school after david e kelly left the show in the middle of season two the characters started to suffer from like a writing perspective but we're gonna push on regardless the show slash school's slogan is every day is a fight for respect for dignity for sanity which tbh same Boston Public initially preceded Allie McBeal on Monday nights and developed a small but loyal following once again. Does that sound familiar? Just like the practice and received critical acclaim for its drama and ethnically diverse cast. However, Fox, king of terrible moves, moved it to the Friday night death slot for its fourth season. The show couldn't quite match the same success of, of his other shows like The Practice or Boston Legal. And Fox canceled it midway through its fourth season. Like it was supposed to have, I believe, 14 or 16 episodes, but they got shortchanged by two because they're like, fuck it and just canceled it. God. I know. But despite David E. Kelly's more annoying writerly tendencies, I do admire I do admire that he does not care about what's popular and just wants to make his little weird shows about what he knows and is interested in. And for Boston Public, Kelly said, quote, this is a show I've wanted to do for a number of years due to my fundamental admiration for teachers. I still believe they have the most power. I still believe they are the most powerful people in the country in terms of future. Most of them don't even know it. I guess I've always just been struck by the level of commitment and compassion they have in the face of such pessimistic odds. The title of each episode was numbered like a chapter, similar to like a textbook. And each character appeared, each character that appeared was given like a full story arc uh, with the professional and personal lives intersecting. Boston Public won a Peabody in 2002 for chapter 37. And the final two episodes did eventually see the light of day in 2005 when it was syndicated on TV One. Bonus fact, though, the practice episode the day after from season five, Kevin Riley asks Eleanor Fruit, who was played by Cameron Mannheim, to represent him in a school board meeting when he's fired from Winslow High School, which takes place at the Boston Public School. And this happens uh, in the Boston public universe uh, during chapter 13, season one, episode 13. Oh. 
And after Boston Public was canceled, Shy McBride reprised his role as Stephen Harper on an episode of the practice spinoff Boston Legal in the episode Let Sales Ring, which was in the first season. It was episode 16. But that's pretty much it for, you know, a little bit of the backstory of Boston Public. Each episode pretty much is like a self-contained episode. There are not really huge season-long arcs. There's like interaction between the teachers. But the cast is pretty remarkable. And you probably know a good bit of them. You have Loretta Devine, who plays Marla Hendricks, who's a social studies teacher. You know her. She was also recently on um, Secret Celebrity Drag Race as Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. So... That's really exciting. Um, we also have Anthony Held, who was like a or healed, who was like a um, just like a character actor. He kind of looks a little bit like Giles on Buffy, but that's not, it's not the same actor. Uh, he played Scott Gruber, who was the vice principal. You have Shy McBride, who is like another like huge character actor. He was most recently on that like reboot of um, Hawaii Five O. And he still like, oh, yeah. acts up into this day. He was also in Pushing Daisies and a couple of other, a bunch of other things because he is just one of those char- TV character actors who stays booked and busy. Uh, he played the principal. We have Sharon Leal, who plays Marilyn Studer, who is like the English and music teacher who, um, in the trailer for the practice, a student tells her that um, he took a poll of all of the students at Winslow and she's the number one most fuckable teacher. Isn't that I remember that specifically, that pilot and that. Yeah. <laughs> she also still acts. Um, she was in Dreamgirls. She had a reoccurring role on Supergirl. And she was also on The Good Doctor as Dr. Breeze Brown. Oh, my God. Fucking good doctor. Do you see there's a show called The Good Nurse, too? Or it's mm-hmm. like on Netflix. I'm mm-hmm. just. There's lots I'm of done. Like, lots of good enter career. <laughs> yes. Good, um, good wives, good fights, good doctors and nurses. <laughs> the most Sounded noble like careers. A, der- a deranged Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> For people who love network dramas. <laughs> Jerry Ryan joins the cast in season two as Ronnie Cook, a teacher who then gets promoted to assistant vice, vice principal by season three. Michael Rappaport at his, at his most likable as Danny Hansen. <laughs> Rashida Jones is in the first two seasons as Louisa Fenn. She plays a secretary and then she leaves this show to go onto The Office, which I thought was a fun little tidbit. Fucking Joey oh. McIntyre, kid on the block, doesn't get more boss than Joey McIntyre. He plays <laughs> Colin Flynn for one season in season three and he's an English teacher. And Michelle Monaghan is on. She joins later on. She joins as Kimberly Woods. She's a teacher who gets transferred to the school from another state because she has an obsessed student. <laughs> Who then comes back and shows up, obviously, in episode 57 to stalk her some more. This but, cast is stacked. And uh, this is just a sampling of people. There are other, I know. there are a couple other like longtime, like um, China Shavers, who's been, who's like another like longtime character actress. She's also in the show. She plays a student named Brooke Harper. There are a couple other people that I left off just because there were so many like long term character actors that you would recognize. But we have two certifiable hotties who have, episode arcs on Boston Public. Do do you want to guess who they are? Or do you want me to just tell you? You can tell me. Okay. 
Milo Ventimiglia plays mm. an ad boy who is tempting a girl into bad grades, but really, he's a fucking narc, and he's on his gen- 21 Jump Street shit. And <laughs> because a teacher is like, I know what you're doing. Get away from her. And then she tries to, like, bust him for smoking weed, and then Shia McBride's like, you can't bust him. He's a narc. Uh, I watched those clips. That was very funny. And then <laughs> the second is Chris Evans. He oh, he Boston. Is- he commits manslaughter earlier in the episode no! and, and then takes a teacher hostage and pulls a gun on Shy McBride. This He's, is lit- literally the a Degrassi plot. This sounds very much like Rick. Mm-hmm. And he has an evil jock named Neil. <laughs> God. And that uh, is Boston Public, an underrated classic, but unfortunately, we can't even watch it. You can you can definitely watch those clips on YouTube, but it's not streaming, which is really unfortunate because it was a really solid show. I, you know, I really want to watch it after everything you've told me. I, uh, after rereading about Ally McBeal, I don't think I'd rewatch Ally McBeal again because there's mm-hmm. a lot about it that like falls off. But I really wish I could have just like reread you the entire Hollywood Reporter oral history because the casting of it all is fascinating. Like Lara Flynn Boyle was up for the role at one point, and this mm-hmm. is after she was on The Practice. Like, um, turns out no. that Jane Krakow. I thought that she was given the role on the practice as like a consolation prize yes, for not sorry. being Sorry, yes, Ali that McBeal. is correct. Yes, yes. Sorry, I made that mistake. Um, but th- I misread that. But yes, to your point, that is correct. The other thing was that Jane Krakowski and Calista Flockhart were on the same flight from New York to LA because they were both in plays on Broadway at the time, and they were on the same flight to LA and shared an agent at the time when they were auditioning for their roles. So lots of stuff, and apparently. Uh, Gil Bellows, who plays um, Billy, Allie's love interest, his wife auditioned for Allie McBeal, and he was just reading with her to be like Billy in terms of helping her read lines. And then he got the part as Billy. She did not get cast. Mm. Twist. Interesting. Twist indeed. Yes. I think we've done a lot, a great job covering these shows. There's a reason we're still talking about them to this day and like why they still get referenced, I think a lot in TV, like to your point, I feel like a Boston public, while maybe not a direct influence on Abbott Elementary in how it's the story's been told, I feel like there is there are elements of it for sure. Allie McBeal, like I mentioned, She-Hulk is definitely seen a quite a bit of that. And it's, you know, so iconic enough in some ways that it shouldn't be rebooted, but it is getting rebooted. <laughs> I'm so exhausted. But yeah, I, I know. I wish they would do a little bit more or I wish somebody would talk to, or maybe he's saving it for his memoir, but get a little bit more insight into David E. Kelly's, like his first Kelly verse here with like the practice, Ally McBeal and Boston Public. Cause I, there's gotta be more of like a connecting tissue that we're not able to fully get to because we don't have access to him. And I'm no. sure he's very busy, but I'd be curious to kind of know how, like, if they're if they're having crossover episodes between all three of these franchises, like, you know, what was your like instinct to do that? And like, I understand. And what made you think that you should put them all in the same universe? I feel like I end up having a little bit more questions than I'll have answers to, unfortunately. But like you said, this is why we're still talking about his his early his earlier work, I suppose, like, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. And this absolutely bonkers deal between uh, ostensibly three different networks. <laughs> The the I mean it's funny for a man who is a lawyer who wrote shows about lawyers the paperwork between lawyers at networks must have been insane. 
Can't even imagine. Well, I think that's as good a time as any to end this show on this note. And we want to once again thank you for joining us uh, for our podcast. We've talked about it before, and we made several references to our Patreon episodes throughout this episode. We have a Patreon, and you should check it out. If you're interested, $5 a month gets you two pieces of bonus content. And uh, we'll be putting out some really fun stuff over the next couple of months, especially with the holidays coming up. So stay tuned. Um, If you're interested in joining, it's uh, over at patreon.com slash old millennials pod. Additionally, we are on various social media, Facebook and Instagram. If you want to check out our pages, you can follow us at the old millennials pod. Individually on social media, you can find us. I'm at Emily A. Beijin. I'm at Mark Shiro. And until next time, we say bye-bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.